Backseas Musical Podcast. In American music, there's a long history of different influences and genres that have collided into each other and fractured into other things. And eventually, those things would have their own collision courses and either create something new or revive the things they came from. For example, rock and roll comes from this convergence of blues, country, gospel, jazz, and about 15,000 other things. And if you notice, no matter how far from its origins it may get, there is this compulsion to always bring things back to their roots. Even at its most avant-garde moments, things always seem to come back to the blues, to rockabilly, and to American roots music. Whether it was with the Cramps, the Gun Club, X, or hundreds of others, these original building blocks have had a resurgence. But for some, it's not a resurgence if it never goes away. What it does become is an art form, pure American art. And among one of the most enduring and original of these artists is my guest today, Tav Falco. In 1973, Tav Falco, a film and theater student at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, would move to Memphis, Tennessee to begin a group of video artists to document local musicians and other performance artists. He described the effort as art action, and over time, his performances were getting noticed by the likes of Alex Chilton, the legendary voice of the box tops. Chilton, who was just coming off the implosion of his band Big Star, was especially impressed by Tav Falco's interpretation of Lead Belly's Bourgeoisie Blues. He then closed the show by cutting his electric guitar on stage with a chainsaw. Now, you don't get any more rock and roll than that. By 1979, both Falco and Children would partner up and create an art-damaged rock and roll band known as the Panther Burns. By 1981, they would release their first album, the classic Behind the Magnolia Curtain, on the UK's Rough Trade record label. This record and the ones that would follow would become a major influence on bands like Primal Scream, the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and The Fall. By the following year, Chilton would leave the band, but Tav Falco relentlessly and possibly stubbornly kept moving forward. Simultaneously, Tav would continue making short films, transitioning into acting, publishing a couple of books, and releasing a handful of his own solo recordings. Now, while much of his catalog centers around traditional rock and roll and rockabilly, He's also dabbled in adapting tango and cabaret music into his arsenal. And he's done it with an honesty and an artistic passion that makes Tav Falco a tireless American original. Tav Falco's Panther Burns have just begun their 2023 Ride the Snake Tour, which not only chronicles their favorites over the last four decades, it also comes in the heels of their most recent release on ORG Music, the Nashville Sessions, live at the Bridgestone Arena Studios. And it is wild. And so is my conversation with the great Tav Falco from the unapproachable Panther Burns on Paxi's musical podcast. I've been listening to the uh, the new record, Nashville Sessions, live at the uh, the Bridgestone Arena Studios. You know, I think for for those who know your music and know it well, I mean, there's something so just wonderfully mesmerizing about your music you just you just create a, this seductive and, and sultry mood it, it feels like there's a fire burning somewhere that's pretty typical of all your music not just uh, this recording but this live performance is terrific well thank you for that we uh, we are smoke makers <laughs> and uh fellow pastors and that's uh, 
That's how we do it. We're, we're an Orphic band. Uh, by that I mean, um, you know, my music is, um, well, part of the Orphic vision, going down into the uh, into the underworld, into the underground. And, uh, yeah, well, we are an underground band. But that's, um, uh, rather than a simplistic statement like that, that truly is where our creativity comes from, is the... Uh, it's in the dark waters of the unconscious, the unconscious mind, and that's what we do. We stir up those waters, and there we find the creative impulse. And you can always hear that going back to, to the very beginning. There's something amazing about it, maybe even a little unsettling from time to time, but when you come right down to it, you're, you're still creating this tremendous art where you're taking traditional rock and roll music, and whether it's you know rock and roll or rockabilly or however you want to call it, and you turn it into an avant-garde piece of art. That takes some real creativity to pull that off. Well, I came to it's, um, it's a treatment. Some some might call it a concept, but uh, it just naturally evolved for me when I picked up the guitar. In that um, I came from the traditional to the quasi avant-garde, and so I was interested in country folk blues on the one hand and Carl Heinz Stockhausen on the other. And that's what I was listening to uh, when everybody else uh, in the 70s and 80s, you know, listening to uh, that which was trending at the time. You know, sometimes nothing wrong with friends. But uh, I followed a, a path that I had been exposed to in theater and art and film. And I, um, I brought that into, into music when I picked up the guitar. I had been making films with. Um, indigenous artists and topics of indigenous phenomena around me uh, in Memphis. And I was with an art action video group, Televista Projects. <laughs> and we did a lot of recordings with uh, blues artists, rock and roll, politicians, painters, sculptors, photographers. And uh, pretty soon, by virtue of the blues that I was aiming my camera at, I, I picked up the guitar myself, and I started um, playing. And, um, well, after we recorded the R.L. Burnside piece, Honky Tonk, down at his joint in, in Mississippi, way out, way out in, the, in, in the boondocks in Mississippi, well, I became in, entranced, uh, mesmerized of the trance music that R.L. Burnside was, was playing. I never quite heard blues like Sure. Like the before, two chord blues, you know, a very a swamp like way down in the swamp. And so um, I started playing, trying to play guitar like that. And then in my first um, appearance publicly with the guitar at the Orpheum Theater, I, um, I destroyed the guitar on stage with a chainsaw. <laughs> In an electric skill saw, playing uh, the bourgeoisie blues by Lead Belly in, in a R.L. Burnside uh, style of guitar playing. Was that like in the middle of the show, or was that the the showstopper? Because I would think once you destroy the guitar, the show's over. We were. Uh, I was entre <laughs> uh, act. I was entre act with um, uh, on the Mud Boy and the Neutrons uh, Halloween show. At the, at the Orpheum Theater, the showplace of the Mid-South at Main and Beale Streets in Memphis. And there uh, on the big uh, theater stage, Mudboy and the Neutrons were having their so-called 
last waltz performance, which was in vogue at the time. You know, the band did theirs and Mudboy. This is Jim Dickinson's band, Mudboy and the Neutrons, the um, illustrious record producer from Memphis and um, and recording artist. So he um, he had the show, and I and and um, I was performing with Mudboy in a um, theatrical context. We had a a mime troupe called Big Dixie Brick Company, <laughs> and uh, we were doing interpretive artists on stage. In fact, we formed our mime troupe parallel to Mudboy and the Neutrons at the very same time. So there was always a symbiosis between their musical group and our art action uh, group. And so when Mudboy uh, staged this show at the Orpheum, uh, they asked us to come down and uh, perform on it. And for some reason, I was the only one available in Big Dixie on that date. Uh, So I went down and uh, incarnated two characters that I had developed. I, I performed with, with the rat head. I had a rat's head uh, constructed, and I, I mainly just danced with the band with that and did some interpretive gestures. And then I also uh, did the tube man, where I was um, wrapped in um, yards and yards of clear plastic tubing and uh, moved about the stage with that. Oh, yes, and then the three-legged man. I had a, I had a prosthesis for the third leg, and that was effective. But then, but ultra act, I asked uh, Jim Dickinson if I uh, could go out on stage uh, and do uh, the bourgeoisie blues. In other words, that they're intermission. And Jim said, "Well, yeah, why not?" So um, I went out there with this electric guitar that I had bought from a neighbor, a silver tone for five dollars, <laughs> and I had it routed into my Bell & Howell 16-millimeter uh, motion picture projector uh, amplifier and speaker. I had that on stage, and um, and then I had my own very large format uh, television monitor. And uh, I had Willie Magelson's son, Bill Eggleston, uh, the photographer, Bill Eggleston, operating the, um, the Televista video camera. So I had, we had our own environment. I had my own environment on stage pointed at the audience. And then surrounding us were three um, three uh, WHBQ broadcast television monitors. I mean, cameras. And, um, well, one thing led to another in the bourgeoisie blues. And at the height of it, I pulled out a police whistle and started um, blowing that, put the guitar down between two chairs I had on stage, and proceeded to... Um, destroy that thing, uh, <laughs> saw it in half. And I mean, the audience went completely bizarre. The, the, they went because the sound was, it was really horrendous. The way they, they had me mic'd, uh, it just filled up the theater with this, um, you know, splinters and guitar strings and electronic, you know, explosions uh, all over the, uh, all over the theater. And so, um, it was a, a memorable, um, a memorable and heightened moment, in, I think, in the in, in the history of the uh, Orpheum Theater. Where Alex Chilton saw me for the first time. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to ask you about that because I had read that that you know that is one of the things that he was struck by. Not only your performance of of the song, but once you destroyed the guitar, he was really intrigued. Which is, 
you know, for for a guy considering what he had been through with the box tops and big star, you know, and you talk about Jim Dickinson, the other, you know, their association at Arden Studios, for him to to notice something like that had to be a pretty remarkable performance. Well, you know, I was in uh, evening clothes, uh, tails, frock coat, and um, white gloves that I'd cut the fingers out of so I could play the guitar. And um, I think um, it it was a um, a rather astonishing figure that I cut on stage that day, my first public performance. And um, yeah, I was I was pretty much under the influence of. The theater of cruelty of Antonin Artaud, and the idea of um, of a uh, total assault on stage, right. not necessarily with volume and that kind of intensity, but more of a uh, subliminal cacophonic distortion, uh, more of a uh, delivery of, of distortion and random noise, in addition to lyrical. Um, uh, guitar melodic interpretation of a um, rather provocative um, blues song that Lead Belly recorded in the 1930s, Home of the Brave, Land of the Free, I Don't Want to Be Mistreated by No Bourgeoisie. <laughs> I'm in a bourgeois town. Spread the news all around. So people heard that. They heard that very clearly. When you make that kind of artistic statement, and uh, you're performing that, and then you know, with all the visuals that you were associating yourself with that, that night, what happens after that? I mean, you, you said the, the the crowd went wild. Did were you invited back? I mean, what was what was the next performance you know like that? And was every performance after that in the in the same shocking vein? Well, what happened at that moment on stage um, at the conclusion of the uh, destruction of the guitar? I soldered in half, and then I took the chainsaw and uh, with the skill saw, and then I took the chainsaw and uh, finished it off. And so um, uh, at the height of this frenzy, uh, then I passed out on stage, and they, they drug me off. Really? But I, I did not repeat that. <laughs> I may at some point in the future. In fact, I just took that frock coat out of out of the closet and uh, took it in and had it dry cleaned. So that might be, uh, uh, might be a portent of something to, uh, <laughs> to come again in the character of Eugene Baffle. And that character is also the narrator in my book, Ghost Behind the Sun, Splendor, Enigma, and Death, Mondo Memphis, Volume 1, published by Creation Books in uh, London and New York. But there, Eugene Baffle tells the entire the entire book, which is basically on the uh, the trajectory of, of Memphis, Tennessee, from its inception uh, through my tenure in the Bluff City. So, give me a little bit of uh, of a little bit of history with between you and Alex Chilton at this point. So now he's he's you've been introduced to him. He sees this performance. And then the two of you form Panther Burns together. Tell me about about the formation of that and, and working with Alex. Well, I did not meet Alex on this occasion at the Orpheum. It oh, okay. was um, about a month later at a party uh, I had at my house across the tracks from the Garden District in which Alex lived with his parents in a wonderful uh, Memphis home 
uh, I would call it kind of a maison or chateau. Um, so I was across the tracks there where the working class people live by the L&N Railroad, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad track. And, um, well, I had this party, and um, some of the girls in a, in a band called the Clits were at my house, namely uh, Amanda Jones, the bass player. And um, she called Alex on the phone from my, my, my pad and uh, talking to him, and he said, what's that? I hear this guitar in the background. What is that? I never heard anything like that. What's that? She said, oh. Oh, that's that guy that was at the Orpheum that destroyed the guitar, remember? <laughs> well, I'm coming right over. So he came over that night and joined the party. And um, he and I stayed up all night playing the guitar. After the party ended, we still kept going. Um, you know, I, didn't, I, I only played very rudimentary country blues. Of course, Alex... Not only could play guitar, rock and roll guitar, but he could play just about anything else you want to hear. So anyway, we we had a lot of fun that night. It was a really heightened uh, experience. And so he started coming, dropping by my my house. And then he began to urge me to start a band. And he said, I have a drummer, uh, a librarian, a renegade librarian over at the University of Memphis. And he said, all we need is a name if you, if you want to do this. And I thought, well, I thought to myself, look at all the pretty girls attracted to this music. And um, I thought, well, why not? I, I didn't, I really didn't know who Alex was, you know. All I knew is that night he played guitar like some kind of muse. He was mythical on the guitar. And he was playing my guitar, which was a very funky out of tune guitar that but he made it he made it sound like a, a bird anyway um i thought well let's think about this and then he came over and i started i had the televista camera the video camera and we started making some videotapes and we had a big snare drum in my place we had a snare drum that was about two inches deep mm-hmm. but about um two feet wide in diameter so that made a very strange sound. We had that. We had my guitar, and then Alex would bring over. We had my silver tone. Alex would bring over an acoustic. So we started playing at my my place and and making videos and recordings. Uh, all this is in my book, Mondo yeah. Memphis, chapter thirteen, the last chapter of the book. So then I was hearing around Memphis, people were talking about Pantherburn, Pantherburn, Pantherburn. What is that? What is Pantheburn? So I started asking around, and a musician in uh, Mudboy and the Neutron, Sid Selvage, a uh, singer-songwriter, a career of his own, too. He was from that area of Mississippi, uh, from Greenville, which is very close to Pantherburn, Mississippi. So it's a place. Okay. And he told me it's a plantation, and it's still going. And then he told me the legend of the plantation. Uh, This plantation, by the way, was owned by the Percy family of poets and writers in Mississippi, uh, co-owned, co-owned by by them, Uh, Cotton Plantation. Still there, still thriving. And then there's the legend, the legend, of course, of the plantation. You you know that? You know that legend? You want to hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. 
around the turn of the century, there was a um, clearing of the land for further cultivation of cotton. So the forest was being cleared away, the brush, the underbrush, everything, so they could start planting. Well, there were a lot of animals living in these uh, in, in the forest and in the brush. Uh, rabbit, bear, foxes, um, and uh, and panthers. And there was one panther that um, was not so happy about about losing his habitat. And what they did, they cleared the land and they they put up these big brush piles, big piles of debris and brush and trees, and limbs and all of that. And um, later on, they would come by and they burn those burn those brush piles down. So this panther had nowhere to go um, when they when they cleared out this land, and so he started howling all night and raiding the chicken coops of the planters and the farmers, and became a general nuisance. So they formed a posse. Farmers armed themselves and formed a posse to track this animal down. Uh, they also set traps for him, but. The panther was cunning, and he eluded their traps. One night, they chased him into a cane break of wild cane growing. They 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 sick their dogs on him, their hounds. They tra- they tracked him into this cane break, and uh, they set that cane break on fire. So the howls and the shrieks of the panther were such that they named the uh, they named that lo- they named that uh, place Panther Burn. And I thought, well, there was um, muddy waters, the howling wolf, the rolling stones, and now there's the panther burns. The panther burns. So the first time I became aware of panther burns would have been like the uh, the mid '80s when I was in uh, was in college, and uh, and I remember that we had a copy of Behind the Magnolia Curtain, which was the the first record, and I think we had uh, the World We Knew also, and. Uh, the thing I loved about the about the music on on those records is there's this total commitment that that you have to the art of making that music, treating it like like an avant garde piece of art. Tell me about those early records. I mean, obviously you're going from performance and, and art action, and now you're putting it down, you know, on on tape and 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 turning it into into something you know that that's tangibly held. What was what was that experience like to get those songs out? into the public and, and into people's hands. Well, Alex uh, would uh, criti- he criticized me. Uh, he said, uh, Tavo, what we're doing is entertainment. And uh, you're trying to turn this into an art form of some kind. Mm. And I said, well, Alex, um, I understand you as an entertainer, but I also hear something else in what you do. And I hear something else in what the cramps do. And for me, it is a kind of, especially what the cramps are doing, is, um, is again, a kind of theater of cruelty from Antonin Artaud. I sensed a certain um, demonic gradient. And with Alex, I sensed something a little different, more of a lyrical quality at his best. And um, even though it was mainly Americana, that Alex was singing, I felt there were musical overtones that took him beyond the realm of entertainment. At least that touched me in a way that was more than simply being entertained. Um, 
Now, with my work, I explained to Alex, I said, well, yes, I want to entertain. Uh, I do want to entertain, but um, if I'm going to concentrate on making music with the guitar and with my voice, it's going to become uh, a means of personal inner expression for me. I'm not going to compromise that. And if I don't have anything meaningful to express alongside the fun and the um, exhilaration and the noise-making and the smoke-making and the commotion of rock and roll, then I'm not that interested in it. Then it's just kind of a hedonistic uh, bacchanal that I do on stage. And that's one thing, that's part of it, but it can't be all of it, not for me. So there has to be a poetic moment. There has to be an, a moment of expressionist feeling that people take home residually and they don't forget. There's a, there's a wonderful piece of video that's, uh, that's out there. And I, and it's, it's from 1979 and it's on a local television show, I believe in Memphis where the band is performing and the host clearly doesn't understand what you're, what you're trying to do. And there's this conversation between you and, and the host where she's trying to understand what she just saw. And I think what you what you did was actually quite admirable, and, and I was able to understand it, where you were trying to explain that what you do is exactly what you just explained to me just now about the art of your performance, not just about whether it's it's musical or easily understood, but there's an artistic element to it. And I found that explanation to be really interesting the way you did it, and I, and I have to believe that that was understood by some, but probably not understood by all. Did you ever get a, a great deal of, of resistance from audience members or club owners or, or whatever it might be for taking that artistic stance rather than a more musical one? Panther Burns have been greeted with howls of contempt on the one hand and with squeals of ecstasy on the other. So we have polarized all whom you've just mentioned, club owners, audiences, critics, and others. We have polarized that audience, uh, not so much by intention, although I have intended to be provocative on certain themes. On other themes, I've intended to, um, I've intended to entertain, to enthrall, to enchant, to cast a spell, to seduce with a vital elegance. You know, when I, when I hear your music and when I hear, you know, how it's grown over the years, you know, especially with the, with the latest, you know, record, the Nashville sessions, I, I mean, I hear what you're, you're trying to do. There is some provocation. There is a, a seduction to it. And, and interestingly enough, you're doing it in multiple styles too, which doesn't necessarily clash with other music you've done. I mean, I hear, you know, there's a bossa nova, uh, you know, song on that, on that record. There's also more traditional rock. You're able to make art out of all of those, all of those things and still establish the mood that your music is known for. I think that's really extraordinary that even after all these years, you still have the ability to evoke a reaction and turn what you do into an avant-garde piece of art. I mean, I think it's really telling about the artist you are. It's uncompromising and unapologetic, and I think that's what's so damn wonderful about Tav Falco and Panther Burns. Well, the musician 
plays for the audience. He plays music for the audience. And an artist draws from within himself. And he uses materials, genres, and modes at hand. Some of the material in Panther Burns I have written and created. On the other hand, I have I have flogged about every genre imaginable, <laughs> from tango to rock and roll to blues to jazz to pop standards, bossa nova, calypso, ballads. There's hardly anything. Well, there's hardly a genre that was so sacred that I have not. I, I have not flogged, and uh, it's it's um, a means to an end. It's like um, let's write a uh, Elizabethan sonnet. Well, you take on a form. You take on the. Uh, you have to work within that genre if you want to create yeah. and write a true sonnet. So, if you want to create a tango, for example, you have this wonderful form before you. And it's got a structure, it's got a form, it's got a tonality, it has a rhythm. And you can use that and express your own self in that. And that's what I do. I have only one song. I have only one song to sing <laughs> in any genre I touch and in any song I might compose. It's still that naked, lonely, subjective I secret eye, and that's all people really want from an art. That's all they want. They only want that vision of that artist. That's what draws people. You know, I don't draw a lot of people. I draw some people. That's okay for me. But the people who are drawn are those that identify and feel something within myself that's coming out whether it's in a picture or in a, a book or whether it's in a song or a film. Speaking of films, I just completed my first feature movie, the Urania Trilogy. I just came from Paris where the Cinémathèque Française took that film into their permanent collection along with my short films, which they um, collected a few years ago. And now I'm here in New York in advance of our U.S. tour to. Um, go back to Anthology Film Archives and speak with him about a screening of the entire trilogy. They screened part one in 2017, and now I finally completed this trilogy, and um, I'm looking for a screening. Um, I'm seeking screening for uh, 2024-2025. So your your film work is pretty lengthy. I mean, you've you've done a, a lot of it. I, I noticed on the on the website there is a video uh, tour diary that uh, that is available, and there's a preview of it on the website. And as I'm uh, as I'm watching it, I can't help but feel that there's a that there's a story that needs to be told. Maybe if it's in the form of a of a of a documentary about. Panther Burns. Would you ever consider doing something like that, where they get to tell the story of your art and 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 how this has gone on for as long as it has? Well, I'm open to that. Um, I'm always open to documentation. Some quite a bit of that myself. Because I think it would be fascinating. Before I started, before I started Panther Burns, but um, I might say that um, the tour diary 
is available to all of those who bought the LP, the vinyl LP of the Nashville Sessions, and or downloaded it, bought the digital download. There is a QR code where that tour diary is accessible. It is uh, around 39 minutes in length and is a collection of phone videos made by various people. I edited that. It took me about six weeks to edit the thing. It was not easy, but um, I did it, and uh, and I wanted the audience to have that document because it is the stark reality, mainly a stage stage show, a little off camera, a little backstage, and some other places. But um, further in 2015, J.P. Olson, an HB HBO producer here in New York, made a short documentary uh, on me called um, Make Me Know Your Mind after one of the, after the Conway Twitty song that I, I often sing. And um, he filmed that, uh, recorded it here in New York on, on video at a show I did and uh, a lot of off-camera going around, getting my amplifier repaired, um, getting off the bus uh, getting out of a taxi with my equipment here in the West Village where I stay. And uh, it's about 19 minutes, so it's a quick view. Uh, since then, a, um, a filmmaker in Rome, Michele Daniele, has been following me around for around three years with a 4K, 4K video camera. And um, he's got quite a lot of material on me in America and in, uh, and in Rome. Um, and um, I'm not sh- quite sure when or what he's going to do with that, but he assures me he's going to finish it. He wants to come to uh, he wants to come to um, Thailand. You know, I decamped from Europe to Bangkok about uh, November before last. Had been in Vienna for quite a while because I was attracted to the uh, art and music and culture. Uh, in the Cinematheque in Vienna, I was uh, spent a lot of time in there. In the theater, wonderful English theater in Vienna. Yeah. So I, I, uh, Vienna's a big theater in Cinema Town. And I made two um, short films in Vienna that uh, are on my YouTube channel. And uh, they're, they're forerunners of the um, Urania trilogy which is a trilogy of intrigue films in black and white, 16-millimeter motion picture. It sounds absolutely fascinating. Well, I'm okay with the result. (laughs) I'm pleased with the result. I don't know whether one can ever be totally satisfied, but um, I'm I'm fully fully acceptive of of the result. I had a lot of delays in finishing. Um, uh, The the, the filming was finished... um, some months ago in uh, in Vienna and uh, part three in Venice. And then I was not able to start editing because of tour dates, other other interventions until February. And then I worked night and day flogging that editing straight through till August, to the end of August. It was a massive job, much more even than the filming was to edit that movie. 
two hours and 20 minutes in duration. So the new album, The Nashville Sessions, live at Bridgestone Arena Studios, it's an absolutely wonderful performance. I know you're on tour going all over the U.S. Sounds like if people get a chance to see you, it's definitely be worth the effort to get out there. Well, I hope they come. And um, we're bringing our music to your town. And we, uh, we hope you come see Panther Burns or Behold. <laughs> Anything quite like the unapproachable Panther Burns. Tev, I appreciate the time today. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Baxi. Thank you for your erudite understanding <laughs> and perception of our group and for your time and interest. Thank you, Tev. The name of the new record from Tav Falco and the Panther Burns is the Nashville Sessions live at the Bridgestone Arena Studios. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. Make sure you check out our regular updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.